Director of Congregational Life, Rick Pratt, to bring the word this morning. Thanks, Chad. Move that so you can see me. So, anyway, um, as we come to the word of God this morning, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, to think about your gospel. It's come to us. That it can go through us and into the lives of others around us. And thinking about yoggers going to St. Louis and uh, my family going to Ukraine. And for each one of us as we leave, we take it with us. And we pray that you'd use us as a church. That your, the faith that has been implanted in us would grow and produce life in us and through us. So this morning as we read your word, would you teach us? Would you instruct us? Would you give us strength as we follow you this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Uh, had a chance last week. We looked at John chapter 6. We looked at the, the feeding of the 5,000. And this week, uh, we're going to look at the miracle that follows that, but from a different angle, from the, the gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at this account of Jesus walking on the water. And so I, I got to, during the VBS, the, the pastoral staff get to do some teaching on one of the nights. And so we each took one of those days of VBS and I got day number three protected by Jesus. And this was the passage. And so we each are given five minutes to give a little message on that passage. And, and generally we take more. I took six and a half minutes that night. I just had a, a great time with that. I thought, you know what? I want to, I want to preach on this passage this morning. So we're looking at it. It is longer than six and a half minutes. So don't uh, get all excited that somehow we'll be done in six and a half minutes, a few, a few more minutes than that. So uh, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And together the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So this is another one of those miracles. It's fairly well known about Jesus. In fact, every time I bring it up, my wife reminds me of a camp experience she had that is really memorable to her of where they reenacted the walking on the water. And so when we read this, as we see this account, it's familiar. We know it that three of the Gospels have the account. But Matthew has a particular interest in this one 
because he's the only gospel writer that gives us the account of Jesus stepping out of the boat and onto the Sea of Galilee. He's the only gospel writer that that tells us about this particular aspect of this event where Peter says, call me out into the water. And Jesus does. And he goes out and he gets to walk on the sea of Galilee. And so the question that we look at this morning, we look at this particular passage. What is it that Matthew is doing with this account in particular? What's he tell us? What's he demonstrating to us through this picture of Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the sea. What do we need to learn from this? Well, there's two broad themes that I want to kind of start with as we look at this account. I think to some degree, if we could kind of step outside of this text and, and not, it not being so familiar, we would kind of be blown away by what Jesus is doing when he walks on the water. How strange is that act in some respects that he would choose to do that? And so one of the themes that's important for us to get in Scripture, even as we read this account, is the theme of the, the force of water in, in, in Scripture. We find that it's a pervasive theme, that the force of the nature of water in, in Scripture is, is an important one for us to get. It's a pervasive picture that it's that 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 it has a kind of power that's to be seen and understood from the very beginning uh, we see that in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 we see that the spirit of god was hovering over these waters the the chaotic waters primordial waters before he spoke into them to create that god is over the waters he is has control over the chaotic waters in that point and then if you go to the very end of of revelation you find that john in his vision says this about the new heavens and the new earth he says and there was no more sea and he's not exactly saying that there's no water what he's saying is that what the water is symbolic of the chaos of this world is gone there is no more chaos there's no more forces against the forces of God as they're gone in the new heavens and new earth. So from beginning to end, we see this picture of water. And, and in between, we see these pictures, right? You can go to the flood, the flood account in Genesis, right? How God uses the waters to destroy. You can go into Exodus and you find that the Nile, this deity to the Egyptians, was turned to blood. You can go to the, Egypt, to the Israelites crossing the Red Sea where God splits the, the sea for them to pass through. And he blesses them. And at the same time... He uses the waters to curse the Egyptians as he protects his own and destroys his enemies. You can go to Joshua and you find that as they, as the second generation were crossing into the, the new, into the land that was given to them, right? As they crossed the Jordan, it says that as the feet of the priests put their, their souls on the surface of the Jordan, it split. And we see that these pictures of water throughout the, the Bible, these pictures of this force, that is unrulable except by God. He is the one that speaks into it. He's the one that controls them. Otherwise, the images of water are that of chaos and unruly. And so in the first century, as they would see this picture, as they would understand it, we can certainly look at Christ and the, the images of the Gospels where Jesus calms the waves. It's a picture of deity. It's telling us, it's demonstrating for us that he is God. Only he can control the force of water that's here. And so as we think about it and we look at this, uh, this account, it's not just a, a cool trick. It's a picture of deity that Jesus gives to them and he gives to us. But then the second theme that's important to get as we understand what Matthew is doing in this particular gospel, in this account, it's a theme of discipleship. 
And then Matthew, when he writes his gospel, has a particular interest in writing to the church to instruct and instill an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. He wants to give them pictures of faith so they can understand what does it look like to follow Jesus? What's it look like to be a disciple? What are the demands of discipleship? What is the picture? What does that, what does this look like? The nature of it. And so he has a particular interest in this. And we see these two themes of water and this picture of deity that has control over water. And we see this picture of discipleship and they come together in this particular account that Matthew frames for us. And so as we come to it, we want to really ask the question, what do we learn about discipleship? What do we learn about what it means to follow Christ through this event that Matthew gives to us? But real quick, let's get an overview of what happens in this, in this account. As I mentioned, this follows the feeding of the 5,000. We looked at last week in John chapter 6. It says that immediately that he sent his disciples across the lake into a boat so they leave and then he dismisses the crowd the multitude that are gathered we assume that he dismisses them primarily because of their intention to make him king so he dismisses them and then we find that he goes up onto a mountain to pray and if any of you wonder why we go to colorado in the fall this is my proof text because jesus went on a mountain so should we and so he goes up to pray and then the story tells us that, that the, the, apostles, the disciples, as they're making their way across the Sea of Galilee, it's kind of slow going. That the winds are against them. And it's really, the conditions are not great for sailing. And then in the middle of the night, the fourth watch, between 3 and 6 a.m., the text tells us this crazy account of Jesus walking on the water. Out of nowhere, we, we see Jesus just coming, walking across the Sea of Galilee, and how do the disciples respond like any normal person would? They are scared. They're, they look at this image of this person coming, and they think it's a ghost. And it, it, the text says that they cried out, right? Like, like little children kind of crying in fear when they see this. And so Jesus speaks into the situation, recognizing their fear is warranted and validates. Like, don't, don't worry, it's, you know, chill, right? Take heart. It's me. I am. I'm here. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. And then, then the text, all, Matthew or Mark and John end this account here. But Matthew carries on. He continues to give us this picture of this interaction between Jesus and Peter. And this text picks up here. And Peter steps in, right? He asks the question, invite me out into the waters, right? This is classic of Peter. It's what we love about Peter. He's not bashful. He's not shy. But he steps into the situation. He says, hey, call me out. I want to I see if it's really you. And Jesus says, come. And we're told, the text just tells us that he walked on the water. How far, we're not sure, but he did. And then what happens, right? The, the winds and the waves begin to kind of catch his attention. And his sight and vision of Jesus begins to fall. And his vision is in, in, what he sees in the, the winds and the waves. He begins to doubt and so he begins to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. Text tells us immediately Jesus reached out. He doesn't let him flounder. He reaches out and he pulls him in. And then he corrects him. Right? He says, why, you, why do you doubt? Oh, you have little faith. And then assists them as they get back to the boat. There's a miraculous calm on the sea. And then following that, people worship. Their eyes are opened in a more clear way to see who this is. 
It's one who not just walks on the water, by the way, he calms the sea. And so there's a worship there at the end as they see this. But as, as we look at this, we want to see this, this record that Matthew gives us. I think what he shows us is an honest picture of what discipleship looks like, an honest picture of what the Christian life looks like. What does it look like to follow Jesus in reality, right? In the context of wind and waves and real circumstances in our lives. What does it look like, not just in theory, not just in our minds, but in reality, to to walk with him through real circumstances, real situations, real forces that are arrayed against us? What does that look like in practice? What does it look like in action? And as we think about Matthew's divinely inspired theme of discipleship and the backdrop of water as a metaphor, we can learn about what discipleship looks like, what the life of faith in Christ does. And there's four aspects of this I kind of want to look at as we think about this account. The first, first aspect has to do with the fact that he comes walking on the water. And, and it's a surprising kind of event in, in this account, Right? Again, if we could step back and look at it and go, I didn't see that coming, right? And so the way that Jesus shows up in our situations as his followers will surprise us. The kinds of things that you can't guess, we see Jesus stepping in. It's not comprehensible. It's difficult for us to understand the way that Jesus will step into the circumstances that we find ourselves. The way that he shows up in our lives. You know, if we had a thousand guesses, you know, this would be a thousand and one for us. And so for the first time reader to go, whoa, this is surprising. In fact, he shows up in such a surprising way that his own disciples don't recognize him. They don't even realize who it is, but rather they think that it's a ghost. So when he shows up, we might even find ourselves questioning whether it's him or not. So when he shows up, it's a, it oftentimes will be a surprise in the way that he shows up. It's good to see that. It's good to understand it. But he does step in, right? He understands, okay, this is a surprise to you. I get it. But he speaks to them. He says, take heart. Take courage, right? And then he, and he uses a title. He says, it's, it is I, which is really the same thing as I am, right? And what he's really saying is, I am is here. The God of the Old Testament who is in charge of all things is here. Don't be afraid. So he speaks into their situation and he commands them. He calls them to not be afraid. And so the way that he shows up will surprise us. My wife and I and our family have had a little bit of a surprise in, in, in the course of, of our trip to heading to Ukraine. Uh, and the fundraising part of this is always kind of an interesting kind of aspect. If you've ever done that before, you never know exactly how it's going to come or where it's going to show up in our lives. But, and again, it's been surprising. It's been incredible to see how God does provide for us. Very generous. Lots of folks have helped us in our trip. But one particular day we received an envelope from some friends of ours that we hadn't seen for decades, had no communication with them for decades. And I want to read you the opening paragraph from this person as he writes to us. We hadn't seen that used to support us a long time ago. His name is Rob and he's from Texas, as you'll note. He says, so allow me to explain the check. Several weeks ago, I woke up in the middle of the night and the Lord told me to send you, you all a financial gift. 
Not for anything in particular, just a gift. I heard a whisper from God. How much? Well, I struggled with the amount, not because I didn't want to send a check, but because it was a fair amount of money that he put in my head. I was going to send you all something last week when you all, you note all that, he writes y'all, uh, uh, to use as you needed. But life has a way of getting busy, so I delayed. Then I received y'all's letter and noticed one of the amounts was the amount that I intended to give. Hmm. The amount was that that was the amount. Okay, God, now you're just showing off, he says, as you have a way to do it. My point, we, we read that in tears. It wasn't the amount of money. That was pretty cool. We were thankful for that. What was even more surprising was the way that God had stepped into our situation and validated for us, affirmed for us, and for our friends, Rob and Linda, this process, this call in their lives and our lives both to go and to give blew us away. That God would wake up Rob in the middle of the night, however long, a few weeks ago, and tell him. And then he would say, oh, and by the way, this is why. God, Jesus shows up and it's surprising. And we shouldn't be surprised, but we are. But that's what the life of faith, that's what it looks like. But let's move on in our story. We see also to follow Christ means that that we see our discipler, this one that we're following is walking on water. And it tells us something about him. But the question is, what does it tell us? What does it tell us about Jesus that he walked on the water? You know, Jesus never does anything arbitrary or random. But why do this? You know, of course, you know, again, it's kind of like a joke. Why did Jesus walk on the water? Because he needed to get to the other side, right? Yes, he did. But he could have gotten there anyway. Any way he wanted to, right? He could have teleported. He could have jet skied. There's lots of ways he could have done it. But he chooses to walk on the water. And what is it that he's doing? What is he demonstrating? Of course, He's demonstrated he's God. I had, I had Chad read from Psalm 104 earlier this morning. And that Psalm is a beautiful picture about God being a God over all of creation. But it has a particular interest in God being the creator and the one who commands water. That he made the deep. He commands the deep parts of the ocean. That he's the one who set the boundaries this far and no farther. That he's the one that commands the the springs to burst forth so that the animals are fed and the, and the, and the vegetation is, is taken care of. It's a picture of God commanding the forces of water. When Jesus walked on the water, it's a clear sign to disciples and to, his, and to us that he is God. But he, as God, he commands and controls all things. The chaotic waters that he is walking on, he is in control. As we see Jesus walking on the waters, we might be reminded of, of the God in, the, in Genesis who is hovering, right? The Spirit of God hovering over the chaotic waters. And here comes Jesus walking on the waters. And you say, how did he do it? I don't know. You know, it was a force of gravity change such that he could kind of glide across the surface. Was the composition of water itself transformed such that it buoyed him up as he stepped onto it? I don't know. But the fact is... This is what happened. Creation accommodated to the creator. Creation responded to his needs. And it did his bidding. What he needed it to do, it did. And so we see this picture of him being Lord over 
this as Creator. And it revealed to them and to us in an an undeniable way that He is God and not a ghost. And it's a kind of, for them, it's an argument from greater to lesser. For them, the most powerful force on the face of the earth, natural force would have been water. And if He is over and commands the waters of nature, then there's nothing that he can't control. From the greatest power, he controls it. So therefore, every other power, every other power in nature, he is in control of. Every circumstance, every situation, every force. It's an argument from greater to lesser that we see as he walks on the water. And so discipleship means following, living by faith in this one who has power over all things. His power and command over everything. So it's a surprise as we follow him. To follow him is to believe and to know and to come to understand that he has this power, this kind of command over all things. But then the third aspect as we look at this is that the growth as a follower of Christ is related to our practice and our exercise of our faith. It's related directly to our practice and our exercise of our faith. This is where we see Peter step into the story, right? In verse 28. And this is, this is Matthew's particular interest here. We see Peter as he answered him. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out onto the water. That Peter's front and center here. And he has a particular interest in this. And he asks this question. Invite me out onto the waters, right? They were afraid of him as a ghost. But now he says, call me out. And the question is, why does Peter do that? What is he up to there? Is he, is he thrill-seeking, you know? You know, kind of bucket list, you know, bungee jumping, walking on water, whatever. Is that, is that what he's up to? I don't think so. There's more. I think what Peter's wanting to do, I think a part of his intent, the core of his intent, he wants to substantiate what he believes to be true about Jesus, right? If it's really you, he says, call me out. If it's really the real Jesus, invite me out into the water. So he wants to substantiate what he believes already to be true. And he believes that that's the case. And that w- that's what walking, being called out, will ultimately do. And I think underneath this picture is an important principle for us in discipleship and growth in Christ. It's this. He seems to understand. It's that the real Jesus would be able to empower that which he commands. The real Jesus, if it's really him, he would be able to to empower that which he commands. So if he calls him out into the water, then he would be able to empower him to do the thing he commands him to do. And by the way, in kind of seed form, we see here what the book of Matthew ends with. As Matthew says at the very end, that puts in, we see Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. The power is combined with the command. And the same is true that Peter gets this. And he's really actively living this out. He's confirming that this is really Jesus. And we see that Matthew seems to agree that Peter's instincts are right and good. That he wants his readers to see that this is the nature of faith. The nature of faith is that it is active. It moves a person in a certain direction. It moves them to live and to act in a certain kind of way. Following Jesus is not just simply an intellectual assent to what is true, although that's, that's a beginning point, but it calls one to act, to move, and to step forward into a direction. And what's that direction? 
That direction happens to be in a direction of the improbable, the impossible, into the direction even of the things that we fear. Maybe especially into the direction of the things that we are afraid of. Because we see that Peter moved into the primary source of his fear in order to see and to validate and to experience the reality of who Jesus was. And if I can use this kind of trite phrase and be careful, I think it's true that for each one of us as we follow Christ, there will be moments where we're called to get out of the boat. There will be moments that we're called to act, to live And that action, that movement will always be in the face of something we're afraid of. Into the situation that seems to be impossible or improbable. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's the picture of faith that we see in this action. To trust that he will empower that which he commands as he calls us forward. And we see this faith, this courage and action from Peter and require us to move and to step into this. This is the impulse of faith. The goal is not thrill-seeking. The goal is Jesus-seeking to validate who he is and to, to walk with him and to be with him. So we see that this action of faith moves us in a direction. And, and, and we see that, that Peter really walked on water. Was it one step or 20? We don't really know. But the text says he walked on water to Jesus. That he really did do that. That he, that Jesus was able to empower him. But this is not the whole of the story, right? It's not the whole of the account, right? Walking serenely on the waters with our eyes fixed and unmovingly on Jesus. End of story, right? They lived happily ever after. But that's not the Christian life. That, that's not the way this works itself out. There's another part that Matthew says, don't miss this. This is a good part. This is a great start, but the life of faith doesn't exactly, there's more that's involved in this. And so for Peter and for Matthew, for us, there's more to the story. And I think this is where following Christ, the life of faith, as human beings that are fallen and deficient in many ways, it gets a little bit dicey, right? There's a kind of risk. That's involved in living in this life of faith, especially as we understand that our faith is deficient. At times it shows itself to be that way. There's a relationship between our faith and our experience in walking with Christ. And we will experience to some degree the presence of our faith or the deficiency of our faith. And I think that's what we see at work here in this particular account. You know, there's more that could be said, but as faith in Christ moves us to act, we get to experience God in ways we couldn't have seen, right? As we step out and we see him, he substantiates, he was able to walk on water. He saw Jesus' power in action. The same is true for us. But in ways that we are faithless or our faith proves itself to be deficient, we experience that as well. And so there's kind of two sides of the story. It's not the whole of the story. But our failure and efficiency is a part of, and we see this in the life of Peter. We see it in our own lives. We see in the example of Peter here, his faith was deficient, right? What happened? We see in the midst, in the context of the fierce winds and the waves, he begins to look on those things. What happens in those situations? Doubt creeps in. We begin to question 
the power of Jesus. He began to question, could he really do this? How does this work, right? I don't quite understand this. And it begins to creep in. And what happens to his gaze? It says that instead of looking at Jesus, that he's looking at the waves, that his eyes are fixed there. And we know what happens when we do that, right? The winds and the waves get bigger. And our view and understanding of who he is gets smaller. And that's the circumstance. That's the situation we find ourselves in. Thus that our doubt begins to become dominant. Fear begins to take over. That's a part of this Christian life of growth, if I can put it that way. That's our, his gaze shifted. And what's Jesus do at that point? He, he does step in and he corrects him. He corrects him. He says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? He calls him a man of little faith. And then he asks a simple question. He says, why did you doubt? Now, he doesn't just, Matthew doesn't just kind of single Peter out. In fact, this criticism, this correction, this rebuke is actually a theme in Matthew also. If you read through the book, you'll find multiple times Jesus corrects his disciples. He rebukes them. Why? Because of their little faith. Faith that they didn't have, that they maybe should have, but he corrects them. And he asks them different points. Why did you doubt? Even at the same time as he commends other faith of the centurion and the Canaanite woman. I think here, right? In the good and the faithful and the successful and the faithless and the unsuccessful venture, we see a whole picture of the Christian life. We see a full-orbed understanding of what discipleship looks like in success and in failure. And we see in this account the courage that's lived out by faith, but we also see failure where faith is shown to be insufficient in our lives. And I know for me, and I'm sure for you, that this picture is a familiar one. Both sides of the coin, if you will. And I think this is helpful for us as we think about growing as a disciple. If we can put it this way, that, that failure is an integral part of the growth in discipleship. Failure is an integral part of our growth as disciples of Jesus. Situations where our faith is proved to be insufficient is seen in this account. We're given, though, a kind of response that's important. Jesus gives us, how do we respond to our failure, our deficiency of faith? What do we do? And I think there's a question that we can read right over and miss. As he says, you have little faith. He asks him a question. He says, why did you doubt? Why did you? And I think sometimes, again, we can move right by it and not stop and say, that's a real question. It's rhetorical, but it's intended to invite Peter to think about and to consider and to reflect upon his failure. And to learn as a result of it, to ask the question, why did you doubt And he invites him. He invites us. There's a call to move into our failure, to move into our deficiency, and to learn and to grow in the process of that. Why did you doubt is an important question. For Peter, it's an important question for us. It's a simple question that leads us in a direction. It leads us to the place of our deepest fears. It leads us to the subterranean parts of our soul where our fears reside because the two coexist there or we're prone to doubt God at the places where we're most afraid. 
And to ask the question about doubt is to understand that we are afraid. And to understand and ask the question why we are afraid. It's a place that faith must go and it must grow, but it resists growth because the deep fears reside there. Why do you doubt is correlated with what are you afraid of? What kinds of fears are there? Because the fears in our lives are most dangerous and subversive when they're unseen and unknown. But guess what happens? Our failure, our doubts will will lead us to our fears. It will lead us to the place where we ask and we begin to see the very things that we are afraid of. And Jesus invites us to go there in our failure, in our doubt, to understand and to see them and to see that they're real. And if I could even say this, he even validates them as being real. But what does he do? He doesn't promise to say you will have no more fears. He doesn't say snap and they're gone. But rather what he does, he invites us to go there to see our fears in order to strengthen our faith. Such that our faith becomes greater even than our fear. There will be a day. Our fears will be gone. That is not this day. But this day is the one that he promises to increase our faith. But we can increase our faith and we grow in our faith as we see the places where it's deficient. As we become to understand the fears that are there. Jesus asked Peter to ask himself, why did you doubt? It's an integral part of the faith journey for each one of us to come to those points and to see it. And Jesus asked the same question for us. See, the same Jesus who had called and commanded, invited Peter by faith to step out of the boat. And we see the success and the steps that he took is the same Jesus who invites Peter into his failure, his insufficiency of faith, the deficiency that's there to identify and to see the fear that's underneath there and the doubts. To ask the question, he invites him there by faith to see it and understand it and to grow in the midst of it. It's a part of the Christian life. He invites him into or he invites us into our failure and to learn there. You see, here's the beautiful truth that the failure of the Christian seeking to follow Christ is not terminal. It wasn't for Peter and it's not for us. It's not deadly ultimately, but it's vital. It's life giving. As we step into that and we see our failure and we understand and we ask the question, why did I doubt? He promises to lead us to understand our own fears. And he promises there to provide faith, to strengthen, to be able to overcome our fears. Growth comes by God's grace, both in our faithfulness and in our failure as we seek him. And that's the beauty, right? The beauty of this discipleship process is growth comes as we do it right And as we fail, so long as we're willing to follow him in this lead, this question, why did you doubt? And then to follow him there. So growth as a follower of Christ is related to our practice of our faith, both in our success and in our failure. So following Christ will always be a kind of a surprise. Following Christ and being a disciple means that we understand the power that he has as our creator. But following him also means following him into places where faith is necessary, where we will find success and failure. But the fourth aspect I want to emphasize here as we, as we look at this text is that our growth as a disciple is rooted ultimately in his saving power. It wasn't even in Peter's ability to fix his eyes on Jesus that ultimately saved him. It was on Jesus' ultimate power to step into his circumstance and to save him. It says that, 
in verse 31 that uh, in verse 30. But when he saw the wind and he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand. You see, Peter was never in any ultimate danger, right? He was never in any ultimate danger. His circumstances looked that way. Jesus was only an arm's reach away. And we see that it's his power ultimately that he rested in. It was his faith that he, that this, this instinct again to reach out and to cry out to, to him to save him. Our protection and his protection is rooted ultimately in his power over all the forces that rage against us. Again, this cycle is a familiar one to me. I trust God. I see him work. I move into a circumstance. I find my faith is deficient. I become overwhelmed by the circumstances around me. And I begin to question and I begin to doubt. I begin to sink and become overwhelmed. And I cry out. And what does he do? He shows up. Maybe not in the way that I thought, but he shows up. And here's the beautiful truth that he never will leave us alone to drown in our own failure. He will never leave us alone to drown in our own failure. He is present as we call and cry out to him. He has secured our position with the father. He has bound us to him. And there's nothing that can remove his disciples, his followers, his own from his hand. No matter the circumstances, he is present with us. This Heidelberg Catechism, question number one that Chad read, uh, that we responded to earlier in our worship this response, right? What is our only comfort in life and death in the last half of it? He has delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of the, my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that in all things must be subservient to my salvation. Right? There's nothing that can remove me from his plan. And that's the picture here. The ultimate protection, the ultimate place that we have is in him. And to follow him is to be there. It's to be in that place. Surprising to follow him. See that he's powerful as we trust in him. There's an active part of faith in our success and our failure. But ultimately we rest in his control in our lives. As we prepare for the table this morning, I want us to see one final scene from the life of Peter. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. It's another get out of the boat scene. This is after the, the, the death and resurrection. It's one of the accounts of Jesus where, where he meets his disciples. And it's a beautiful picture for us, which I think is the direction and movement of faith. In verse 4 of John 21. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to, uh, able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. He threw himself into the sea, this incredible picture of Peter as he sees and he realizes that it's Jesus. I think we see this picture of faith and what it does in a person's 
life. I love this picture because it's the impulse of genuine faith. You're probably aware of Jesus and Peter's interactions prior to Jesus's crucifixion. That we see the picture there of Peter denying Jesus three times an ultimate denial. I don't want anything to do with this man. I don't know him was his denial an ultimate denial of Jesus. You see, Peter came to understand and to see clearly who he was and what he was capable of. It wasn't just doubting or deficiency of faith. It was out and out rejection and denial of Jesus. He came to see him and Peter thought, as he was able to save me before. So maybe now he is able to save me again in the situation. It was faith that propelled him to move towards Jesus. As we come to the table, that's what this table is for. This table is for those who recognize, like Peter, that they're in need. It's for for people to come and to, 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 to cast themselves on who Jesus is and what he has done. It's for deniers and doubters. It's for the faithless. It's for all those who realize that that they don't belong here. That they are unworthy of what Jesus has responded. And yet, like Peter, who recognizes who he is and what he has done, the only thing he can do is cast himself on the very mercy of God. So do you find the fears that's present in your life? Do you see the doubts that are present there? Do you find denial and rejection? Do you see the sin that's present? Do you struggle with shame? Do you struggle with rebellion and denying Jesus? If that's the case in this table, it's for you. If you recognize that's true and there's only one place to come, then this table offers the grace that he promises to give us. His presence is here. His gospel and his grace to remove our sin, to deal with our shame, And to restore the honor that he promised to us. And to address whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in. The fears that are real. He leads us here to this table. On the night that our Lord was betrayed. He took bread. And after giving thanks. He broke it. And he said. This is my body. Given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds that as often as we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father. We come to the table as needy people. As you lead us by faith to the deficiencies and the fears and the doubts that reside deep in our hearts and our lives, we see our utter need for you. And we ask and cry out for the grace that you've promised, that you've given to us. And even today in this renewal way that we can come to your table and experience you. You have invited and called us and said, I am here. And my grace is sufficient. And it is displayed in and through these elements. And so we receive and accept and depend upon you and even a new way today as we 
find you to be sufficient as we find ourselves to be unworthy and we cast ourselves in your mercy. So this morning as we come, Father, would you use this table? Would you use these elements by faith to fill up what is lacking, to remove what needs to be taken away and to enable us to be your